Well, good evening. <coughs> Alluded a little bit to this um, the other evening that uh, I guess from from place to place, uh, I guess uh, and it, it's because of a number of different things, a number of different reasons. Sometimes revival, we view revival in different different ways. And uh, I'll be honest with you, what I I don't come with any extraordinary uh, insights to the kingdom of God. I don't come with a word of the Lord type of thing that God has laid upon my heart today specifically for you. However, I can say that I do have some insights into the kingdom of God and that I do have uh, a message for you. But you see, this is intimately tied to this book. It's intimately tied to this word. And and what I want to share with you tomorrow night is so fun. You know, I don't want to skip tonight because tonight's so wonderful as well. But tomorrow night is such a testimony. The passage of scripture we're going to look at is such a testimony to what's going on in the unseens in these type of places. Uh, When the body of Christ is gathered together, the magnitude by which God is involved in this service is devastating. You see, I take those words so literal or every time we are gathered together in His name, He is here. He is here. And so this this evening, if if I could sell you on this one, this evening is bigger than just a service. I want you to know that you are being confronted with the very God who made you and created you. And if you could let that seep into your pores, if you could let that seep into your heart, you'd be changed tonight. And I don't mean that in terms of, well, you know, I don't look at you and see, I don't play the game of, you know, you're my audience and my goal as an evangelist is to get you to the altar. And depending on how, how well that goes, that, how well I rate the revival, I don't, really rev- I don't really view that kind of deal that way. You see, my, my, my calling in life is to eat His Word, to absorb His Word, to saturate my life in His Word. Not only that it takes, a, takes on the characteristics of His life, but that when I stand up and proclaim this word to you, that's my job. That's what he's called me to do, to share with you. But somehow in the midst of that, he takes the truth of this word. And if you are receptive, if you're willing, he'll apply this and mold your life. I once, uh, a friend of mine by the name of Winston Riddles, who I once saw do this, and it impacted me. It set my mindset to what was going on. And before he even opened his Bible, he said... Are you willing tonight? And then he said, just don't raise your hand on this one. Are you willing to be molded? Are you willing to be changed? Are you willing, as the word says, are you willing to be cut? Are you willing to have, have things addressed in your life that may cause pain? Are you willing to die tonight, maybe to some area of your life? Are you willing to be grown, stretched? Are you really willing for that tonight? Are you willing for that tonight? I am willing for that tonight. In fact, that's why I'm here. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing when we're coming into, this, into the Word tonight. Uh, I, really want you to, I really want to share with you uh, out of the Gospel of John this evening, if you would open your Bibles. And I would like to look with uh, you at a uh, familiar scene. However, there is some things that we're going to be looking at that might, be so, might not be so familiar to you. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, well, really pointedly at verse 17 of John chapter 2. But we're going to incorporate a little bit, kind of a recap, a recovery of uh, verses 12 through 16. And so I want to read with you verses 12 through 17. And this is uh, a familiar scene for us. This is a a familiar uh, passage. Uh, It's where Jesus comes into the temple. And, of course, the other Gospels uh, have the same account. However, it's at the end of their Gospel. Each one of them is a little bit different, but it's the same basic deal. Uh, John is here to put it at the beginning of his Gospel. We really don't want to address that too much this evening. Uh, we really want to address what's going on in this passage and how it intersects our lives. Wow. It's going to be great. Let me read it for us. Uh, it's John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And this is how it reads. After this, he went down... To Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's market or turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. kind of want to talk to you a little bit tonight and uh, because I'm the one preaching and in uh, and, and, and the passage uh, that I've selected to look at this evening with you, um, I get to kind of name my sermon. I've always kind of liked that. I mean, this is not my material. I didn't write my own material. Uh, this isn't coming from my brain. I stole it. But I can claim the title of the message. Okay? So I've kind of enti- I've titled this one, Horses and Mules. Horses and Mules. Uh, I'm a city boy. I don't know how many of you are city folk or, or uh, country. But I've always been confused with horses and mules. Been kind of confused with horses and mules. Um, drive out in the country, I couldn't tell the difference. In fact, for the longest time, I didn't know the difference between a horse and a mule. Didn't know there was a difference. I, think, I thought there's just two different names. I mean, we have two different names for mules in our Bibles, don't we? The NIV calls them mules. The King James Version calls them, well, they call them another name. And... Um, It's this little King James joke. Just thought you might enjoy that. Um, but there's different names for uh, horses and mules. Uh, th- what I've always thought. I thought it was the same animal. But did you know it's not? Did you know that a horse is not a mule and a mule is not a horse? It's true. Uh, now, that, it's always deceived me because... Now, hear this. And I, I want to give you a hint. Hear this with spiritual ears. You see, horses and mules look the same. They really do. <laughs> The country folk would look at me and go, no, they don't. Well, all right, whatever. Well, I'm a city guy, all right? You probably don't know the difference between, well, okay. Anyway, horses and mules. To me, they looked alike. Uh, They both have tails, correct? Yeah, they do. They have tails. Uh, They both have uh, manes. Yeah, they do. They both have manes. Uh, they both have four legs, basically the same type of look toward them, maybe a little bit of difference here and there, but I mean for the general part, the basic look towards them. They both eat the same kind of stuff. They both eat hay, I believe. Sleep in straw, that type of deal. You can ride on both of them. I mean, hey, you can put a saddle on both of them. Uh, They both look relatively the same. But a horse is not a mule, and a mule is not a horse. In fact, one of the major differences between a horse and a mule is that a mule cannot reproduce. Did you know that? A mule cannot reproduce. A mule is a hybrid of a horse. I want you to hear that with spiritual ears. Because what's going on in these passages, in the passage we're looking at, is the horses and mules type of syndrome. Horses and mules. I'll come back to that in a moment. But what's going on, and I need to give you some brief update on what, what we're looking at. We're going to center in tonight on verse 17. Now, I, it's not I, but uh, this passage needs to be broken down when looking at it, and it's very easily done. Uh, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25, is the story of Jesus in the temple. Now, what Jesus has actually done is in verses 12 through uh, 16. This is where he walks into the temple. Of course, he's upset. He's there uh, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, possibly some sisters. And he's there to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Hey, this was a big deal. Uh, Everyone was, uh, of course, uh, in the area was going to be there. In fact, if you were within a certain mile radius, you had to be in Jerusalem during this time. So he's come in to celebrate. But he walks into the temple. And you got to understand, the temple was, was back uh, back in Jesus' day, was huge. Uh, They had the inner sanctuary type of deal where they had the Holy of Holies and then the outside. Outside of that was the holy place. And the, but outside of that was called the court of the Gentiles. And then outside of the court of uh, the Gentiles were the outer courts of the temple, which is where the lame and the lepers and all that stuff, uh, people kind of stuff came. But so the people in the, that, that Jesus is confronting, where he's running and whipping and all that kind of stuff, where he's turning over the tables and, and addressing the money changers, this is probably in the court of the Gentiles area. 
Now, Jesus comes in, he sees all of this buying and selling type of stuff, and of course, he, he's outraged, he's enraged. Barclay said he's angry, and he, he, he makes a whip out of cords. Not really sure where he got the cords from, but he gets these cords together, he fashions a whip out of them, and, and he chases, he chases. Uh, and I'm convinced, not just the animals, however, that's uh, likely, because he mentions that, but he chases all from the temple area. He chases them all out of there. Now, the court of the Gentiles was huge. So it's going to be difficult to chase them all out, but he probably chased them from their booths, and there's some mass hysteria. Everybody doesn't know what's going on. Uh, and of course, finally, you come down to verse 16, and he addresses the money changers. Now, to interpret this, again, as we said last night, it's, it's helpful to understand the passage, if you can, uh, interpret the passage within the passage itself. And what I mean is, is I, I've read commentaries and such who talk about how the reason Jesus chased the people from the court of the Gentiles is because, hey, there was no buying and selling supposed to be done there, and we translate that in today, which is there's supposed to be no buying and selling in the church sanctuary. Well, folks, that's not what he's getting at. Uh, these things were necessary items that were needed for the Passover celebration. What Jesus, what Jesus does, he interprets for us himself in verse uh, 16. So you have verses 12 through 15, which is his actions, and then he turns to the money changers and he tells them why he's done that. He's tells them why, he tells them why he's done that. And in verse 16 he says, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn? And he refers to the temple as my father's house. He refers to it not just as the temple. He could use the word temple, but he doesn't. He uses the temple uh, in other places where he says, of course, a few verses down. Uh, and I believe it is in um, verse 19, destroy this temple. could use the word temple, but he doesn't. He says, you have turned, and he says, my father's house into a marketplace. This is why he did what he did. He says, hey, you've turned this temple from what it is supposed to be, my father's house, into what it's not supposed to be, which is a marketplace. Now, if you chase, trace the Father's house, that, that, that language, Father's house, that term, or maybe even the house of God, uh, throughout the, the entire Bible, you're going to find that, that this is not always associated with a building. Not always associated with a building. Uh, in today's society, uh, in our day and time, we understand that this sanctuary is not the house of God. You know that, right? Now, it's nice. I'm not trying to desecrate this place. But who's the house of God here? We are. We're the house of God. And in fact, if you go back into, uh, which is really kind of a neat deal, if you go back into the Old Testament, and it's actually in the book of Genesis, where Jacob has stopped at what will be called Bethel, and he puts a rock underneath his head, he falls asleep, he has this dream, he has this encounter with God, he wakes up from the dream, and he goes, whoa. That's how the NIV, well, maybe that's Jeremiah's translation. But he wakes up and he goes, whoa. In fact, he says, what kind of place is this? This is none other than the house of God. And, of course, there was no walls there. There was no building. There wasn't anything there. In fact, he just stopped for night, probably is up on a little high-rise type of a place. He puts a rock. There's a rock there. And so he builds this temple, places the rock on top, and says, this is the house of God. He names it Bethel. And so we understand that the house of God, now hear this now, the house of God is not associated with a building. You understand that, right? It's not associated with a building. The house of God language is the idea where God dwells, where God meets with man. In fact, when later on, when Moses uh, sets up this, what we call the tent of meeting, that becomes the house of God. It's the tent of meeting where God meets with his people. So the house of God, the idea here used in our passage, our selected passage here in John, why Jesus calls it his father's house, it's, it's, it's bigger than just, hey, it's a temple building. This is to be the place where God intersects with man. This is the place where you can come and meet with God. This is where God meets with mankind. This is where this, is where this action has been established by God. This is what we're talking about here. The very house of God, the place where God, the avenue by which God meets with man. But Jesus says, you've turned the temple from that. Hey, this is no longer the place where everyone knows where you can come here and meet with God. Hey, this has been changed from my father's house to, and he says, the marketplace. And the marketplace is all about the me attitude. You don't come there to meet with God. You come there to get hassled out of your money. You come there to get hassled out of your money. It's the marketplace mentality. And we understand that, and, and of course this is a prior study, but this, this temple scene and what's going on here was crooked, man. 
These guys were after the money, and it was the buying and selling was, it was the marketplace mentality. And Jesus is irate about this. Now, verse 17, which is the passage we're going to look at this evening, is the disciples' response to what Jesus has just done. And so the verses after, uh, verses 12 through 16, which is what Jesus actually did in the temple, the verses following those verses are uh, the record or the recorded responses of those who saw what Jesus did. Are you with me? Are you paying attention? Verse 17 is the disciples' response. Verses 18 through 22 are the leaders of Israel, which John calls the Jews. That's their response. Verses 23 through 25 are all the other people who were at the Passover. That's their response. So what you have in this passage is verses 12 through 16. Jesus comes in. He does this, uh, he does this radical deal. And, of course, he flips over some tables there. He turns to the money, chaser, uh, the money changers. He tells them what they've done. He tells them why he did what he did. And then in verse 17, you have the disciples' response. The next little section, verses 18 through 22, you have the leaders of Israel response. And then the final little section, verses 23 through 25, you have all the other people who are around there, their response. What I want to look with you tonight at is I want to look at verse 17 and the disciples' response, which is absolutely incredible. It was absolutely incredible. The disciples remember scripture. Now, I'm going to talk to you about this scripture in depth here in a moment. But I want to look at the, I want to look at the words by which they uh, apply to Jesus in this, in this scripture. Verse 17 reads, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the word zeal. Teenagers, you can help me out with this. Zeal is not a very uh, common, commonly used term in our day. Would you agree with me? Teenagers, do you hear that in... In school, no. in, in between classes, possibly, you know, hey, around the locker where you're, you're you're reading about the latest Game Boy magazine, and whoa, you run across the word zeal. Oh yeah, zealous. You probably use that word all the time, right? No, no, you don't. But there is a word. Now understand this this translation we're looking at. In fact, we probably have a bunch of different translations represented here this evening. But this word is a translation from an original language word, and this word in the original language, is actually translated two different ways. This is one of those two. Zeal is one of those two. There's another way this word is translated. Anybody know it? Jealous. Translated from the same word. You can translate this word zeal or jealous. Or zealous or jealousy. That type of deal. So the, the same meaning, now hear this, this is profound. The same meaning, the same undercurrent of zeal, because you can often read words and, and, and misinterpret them or misunderstand them. I do, them all, I do it all the time. In fact, you'll probably hear me use some words like that this evening. But the same idea underneath zeal is the same idea underneath being jealous. The same idea under zealous is the same idea, the same driving force of jealousy. You know what jealousy is, don't you? Oh, I know what jealousy is. I'm married. Um, uh, you, you met my wife. Isn't she something? Oh, I think she's something else. And uh, she's got Mexican blood in her. You can tell by her skin. She's always tan. Yeah, she's always tan. And um, she likes Mexican food. Yeah, she likes Mexican food. And we often try to go to Mexican restaurants. We tried to go to one Sunday, but it didn't work out. But uh, we, uh, we, uh, we like Mexican food. And she comes from a long line. She's always telling me about her great-grandpa and how he made these original tamales. And wherever we go, no matter how good the tamales are, oh, these are not as good as the ones of my grandpa because he came from Mexico and he knows how And Chilas lets me have it, lets me know that, hey, she likes Mexican food. So we, when I go into the area, when I go into any new area, I try to find the most back, I mean... The backyard, I mean, this is a hole-in-the-wall type of no one knows about, no one speaks English type of place. You know, and sometimes they're up in front, but I'm what I'm referring to is I'm not talking about Chi-Chi's. You know, that's not Mexican. Taco Bell is definitely not Mexican, okay? I'm well, there's a place where we go to called Puerto Vallarta, where I live, where I used, we used to grow up in Muncie. I used to live. And we go in there, and they're all, I mean, they don't even speak English, man. They don't speak English. They know okay and thank you. That's it. And, hey, that's fine because I don't know Spanish. So we just kind of make it through the whole ordering process. And um, I butcher their language. They butcher mine. You know how that thing goes. And, um, but it never fails. Jealousy creeps into my life there a little bit when we go in those kind of places. Because we'll go in, and my wife, of course, hey, she's, I think she's really attractive. 
don't want to know what you think or care what you think. But um, I, I think she's really, really attractive. And we'll go into these kind of places, and they'll, they'll want to seat us. And, of course, we'll be sitting down. And it, it, it won't, it, man, it won't be five minutes before I look, and there's a whole congregation. I call them congregation because they congregated together. And they're over there, and they're peeking around the corner, and there are a bunch of middle-aged, young, some of them teenager guys who are peeking around the corner, whispering Spanish stuff to my wife. Yeah. I don't like that. And then, in every, and then once in a while, one of them will get brave enough to come up and talk to her. And I'm sitting with her. And it's not like I don't cast, I mean, I'm holding out my ring. I take it off my finger and I hold it up to them. They don't catch it. I've even had them come up to my table and turn their back toward me and begin to talk to my wife in Spanish. And I'm like, whoa, hey, whoa, Pedro, stop, stop. My wife, understand that? No talk. English. 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 Now what's going on inside of me is what we would commonly call jealousy. Jealousy. Now that can take, that can take over a person. You, have you ever felt that? Maybe it's not necessarily with a spouse. Hey, I don't know. Maybe whatever you would be jealous over. But it is an undercurrent. It, in fact, it, it's bigger than just kind of... Uh, it's bigger than just kind of, of an attitude. It's bigger than just a little temptation. When I talk about jealousy, I'm talking about something that literally eats you up inside. In fact... That's how he describes this. Zeal for your house has, and uh, in the NIV it reads, consumed me, which really is a really weak translation. Uh, Does anybody have the New King James here? You do. Would you read that verse for me? Oh, do you sense the, 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 the depth in that word? He's probably never been to a Mexican restaurant. That disciple hasn't. But see, I've got the same type of understanding of that word that he does. Zeal. I mean, this stuff. It's passion. And it's bigger than just like... It's, it's, have you ever seen those guys on television, the sports nuts? I'm a sports nut. In fact, right now, Indiana's probably beating Maryland. But um, you see, I'm a sports nut. And you see those guys who, who take off their shirts and paint themselves yellow and put a basketball on their head and they look like idiots. And they're just... And it just carries... They get carried away with that kind of stuff. That's the picture of zeal. When, you, when they saw Jesus running through the temple, they didn't say, wow, he's religious. They didn't say, wow, he's devout. Look at that guy. No, they said, wow, zeal for your house. And it's not zeal for some building, you understand. This is zeal for, your, for the house, man. Zeal for the avenue of God. Jesus was after this thing. He was after this. Zeal for being the avenue of God has eaten me up. Those are the words. That is the verse that they apply to Jesus. I mean, he is overwhelmed at this. He comes in and he sees that his father's house, the avenue by which God interjects with his world, has changed, that it's no longer that, and it's become the marketplace. And it drives him out of his mind. I mean, Jesus, is. we've just come out of the wedding where he's hiding in the shadows, meeting the needs of the people. He's quiet. His mom approaches him about this deal and he, he's backing away going, Mom, Mom. And you leave that scene and he, it's like he's got a split personality or something. Because he's flying throughout the temple and he's whipping and he's flipping and he's just... And his disciples are, whoa. Now, my, one of my questions were in, in, in this passage, in studying this passage was, why in the world did the disciples pick this verse? You know, and this is... You, you have to understand this about Jesus. You have to understand this about Jesus. And we're going to talk about this very pointedly and directly tomorrow night in the service. But you have to understand that Jesus, oh, you have to understand that Jesus was, he was more than just a man who did good things. You have got to understand that. In fact, I'm coming to the point that you cannot talk about, I mean, to some extent you can, but you cannot talk about the core of Jesus by just what he did. Because he was, it's, it's so much bigger than that. Jesus was not a man who came to this world and just did everything right. I mean, he came and, hey, it's not, it's not often everybody can be perfect, but, hey, this guy came and was perfect. That's not how you describe Jesus. Jesus came to this world and he was just like you and I. Just like you and I. He got tired. He didn't have the physical stamina for things. He probably had back pain. I, went, I talked to you about this the other day, about the stopped up nose. I'm convinced that he had one of those. I can't find it in the Gospels, but hey, I'm sure that he had stuff like that. Allergies. Probably had that kind of stuff. 
But what separated Jesus from us is he was without sin, which means he was in intimacy with God, and everything that was going on in the life of Jesus was not the product of Jesus working hard, Jesus busting his, you know, getting it done. The, everything that was going on in Jesus' life was a product of what the Father was doing. In fact, the Father was so at work in Jesus' life that Jesus would say stuff like, listen, if you've got a bone to pick with me, it's not with me, it's my Father. In fact, if you don't like me, you don't like him either. Because what I'm doing is what he's doing. And he was intimately tied to his father. Intimately tied with his father. And so what they do, so oftentimes what what they do in terms of the gospel writers is in order to talk about Jesus, all you have to do is go back in the Old Testament and talk about God. In fact, there is 333 prophecies. 333 prophecies, which are basically in the Old Testament Uh, these prophets and and certain people would would give prophecies about the coming Christ, about the coming Messiah. Jesus came and fulfilled those 333 prophecies, which tells us that Jesus' life was lived out. It was planned out way before it even happened. Now, you know that. I know you know that. Uh, We knew that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. We knew that. Now, we knew that before he was ever even born. So he couldn't have pulled that one off. We knew that. Uh, we knew that he was going to be born of a virgin. You see what I'm getting at? And if you go back and you look at the first four chapters of Matthew, what you're going to find is, is that Matthew will tell a, a little bit of story, and he'll cap it at the end of that story and saying, this happened to fulfill, that, uh, to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. And it mentions his name. And then he'll tell the next little bit of story and he'll say, oh, and by the way, this happened to fulfill, it was written by the prophet. And so what you have going on in Jesus' life is Jesus literally living day by day by day by day in the will of the Father. When the Father speaks, Jesus responds. And there are times when Jesus doesn't act and there's times when he does act. And you can't pin that down to, well, Jesus was really into homeless ministry. Yeah, he was really into homeless ministry. Oh, and he was also into lepers. You can't pin it down to that kind of stuff. You've got to pin it down to Jesus was into what his father was into. Jesus was into his father. Where, where his father was going is where Jesus was going. And so what happens here is in this verse, the, uh, the, the New Testament writers, uh, specific here, John, he picks an Old Testament scripture and he applies it to Jesus, which is fine. But I want to tell you that there's 333 to pick from. And this one is never picked by any other author except for John. And what's even more strange is this is Psalm. Does anybody happen to know, remember what this is? It, yeah, very good, man. It's Psalm 69.9. This Psalm is. Now, if you go back, and you don't have to turn there just to save, some, save us some time, I'll go ahead and read this for you. Uh, I've got the NIV Study Bible, which um, I don't rely on it too much, but sometimes it's got some helpful information in it in the study notes. And uh, it's got an interesting little excerpt here, or insert here, whatever you want to call that, on this passage. And it tells us about Psalm 69. Now, the disciples, uh, John in particular, refer, uh, he, he comes back and he picks this scripture and he applies it to Jesus. But listen to me. This scripture is, although this little passage can be applied to Jesus, the whole Psalm of 69, there's no way that could be talking about Jesus. Uh, in fact, the, as I said, the NIV study uh, Bible people... They talk about this psalm in terms of this way. Listen to this. Uh, They say the Psalm 69 is a plea for God to have mercy and to save from a host of enemies. The prayer of a godly king when under vicious attack by a widespread conspiracy at the time when God had wounded him for some sin in his life. And so we're talking about a psalm writer who wrote this psalm who was expressing sin in his life. And there's a number of different passages in this psalm that you can't apply to Jesus. One of them is this one. It says, Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be, listened, uh, and not be listed with the righteous. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. Now, that's kind of hard to, to compare that, that passage to the motive of Christ because Christ didn't come to blot out salvation for anybody. He came to give salvation to everybody. That's plain. And so this psalm is kind of hard to squeeze in that area. Uh, Another one is in verse uh, 5, where the psalm writer writes, You know my folly, O God, and my guilt is not hidden from you. Jesus didn't have any sin. 
So it's really hard to pin this on Jesus. And I'm, what I'm wondering is, here, here's what I'm getting at. What I'm wondering is, what made this particular psalm, when there's all kinds of, all kinds of messianic prophecies concerning Jesus, all kinds of Old Testament scriptures, 333 of them, what made this particular psalm come to the disciples' mind? And he just, John does not just say that it came to his mind alone. It says, then, right then, his disciples remembered that it was written, Zophir House will consume me. So it wasn't one of them, it was all of them. What? That's kind of hard to believe. He must not mean it the way he says it there. And so I really struggled with that. Why did they pick this psalm? And why did all of them think of it at the same time? Wow, are you ready to hear this? During this day, during this day, you had in the temple, and of course, uh, we're going to address those tomorrow night in verses 18 through 22. You had in the temple the, uh, the descendants of Aaron, who were the Levites, who were set aside to be priests. They were the priests. They were the ones who were sanctified, who were set apart to God to do the work of God in the temple, to be representatives uh, before man to God. And of course, they were the ones that were to handle all those, types of, uh, all those types of priestly order issues. Now, among the priests was one man who was selected. And I, was it every time, every year? I should note this stuff. Anyway, he was selected from among the priests to be the high priest. And the high priest was the one, very special guy. He was the one selected... Above, uh, among men approved by God to represent God. Uh, he was the one that went back into the Holy of Holies behind the veil. No one else went back there. And this guy just didn't go down. He didn't go back there, have tea, coffee, hang out, you know, talk with that kind of deal. This was a very sacred, special deal. He only went back there one, one time a year. And there was like a, he was very, very quick what he did. As a, he didn't go back there to hang out type of deal. And when he went back there, he tied a rope around his waist. So in case he did something wrong, he killed over, hey, they pull him right out of there. Because I'm not going in to get him, type of deal. Very, very set-apart, sacred stuff. Well, this high priest, oh, teenagers, hear me on this. This high priest wore a, 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 a massive garment. I mean, of course, all the priests did. But the high priest wore some more fancier type of garment stuff. Uh, they wore a huge robe that said, sanctified or set-apart to the Lord, all that kind of deal. But the high priest... And I got this from Edersheim. Uh, he's, a, he's a commentator. He's a great insight. But the high priest wore a silver breastplate. They wore a silver breastplate. And had elaborate stuff on it. And, but on the front of the breastplate had a certain scripture. And it was Psalm 69.9. Which said, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the epitome, the total, the totality of this guy, the high priest. I mean, what this guy was all about. He was set apart to God. I mean, this, this was his number one deal. This is what he did. This is who he was. And his whole life was to be representative of zeal for your house consumes me. This is what he was about. Zeal for your house, not in terms of just temple stuff. But hey, I, I am set apart from man, approved by God. To be the representative of God to man. I mean, zeal for... I mean, I, this, he was representative of all of Israel. And what happens... And so he wore this around. He, he wore it around all the time. And, and if you ever came into the temple and you happened to run across the high priest and you saw him, you said, whoa, hey, there he is right over there. Look at him. You can see him. See the breastplate? Hey, you can see... You can tell him from anywhere. He's distinguishable among, distinguished among any other of the Israelite people. And so the disciples, now hear this, the disciples have seen this guy over and over and over, and they saw the breastplate, and they've read the scripture, but you understand they never really caught it. Oh, hey, there he is, zeal for your house will consume. Oh, that's him, you see him, I see him, oh, there he goes, oh, I didn't see him anymore, he's gone. And they saw that guy. But they see Jesus coming into the temple. Oh, hear this. They see Jesus coming into the temple. He doesn't have on all the elaborate garb doesn't have all the religious clothing on. Certainly is not wearing the breastplate. And he comes in and what they see in his life, what they see in his life, the first thing that they see when they, when they look at him, their response to what he has done is it just it clicks in their mind. Immediately clicks in their mind. They go, whoa, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, he didn't have to hold up any signs and say, hey, watch me on this one. It just, they saw it in him. But, you got to, and, and the way they say, the way he says it, they didn't say anything else, but the way he pictures it here, it's as if that's the first time they've ever understood what that verse means. 
Now, I want you to hear the weight of that because they've seen the priest in the temple, I mean, hey, possibly week after week after week after week and never really understood what that verse means. Certainly never saw it before, but they see it in Jesus and wow, for the first time see it. Horses and mules. To a city boy, horses and mules look a lot alike. Hear this with spiritual ears. Horses and mules look a lot alike. They eat the same thing. They kind of look the same. Got the same mane, same tail. Same type of legs, feet, body. Put saddle on both of them. Smell the same. But a horse and a mule are not the same. And one of the major differences between a horse and a mule is a mule will not reproduce. Now let's bring that into church. Horses and mules. It's always my wonder, going to church to church, it is so difficult. And I don't, it's not that I try to do this. But if someone came up to me and pointed to me and said, I want you to pick out the ones who aren't Christians and pick out the ones who are. I don't think I can do it. Well, because the Christians and non-Christians in church, well, they look the same. A lot of times they dress the same. They eat the same things. Most of the time smell the same. But a Christian is not a Christian. Or a Christian's a Christian and a non-Christian is a non-Christian. Do you see what I'm getting at? You see, it's one thing to look like one. But do you have that going on inside? You see, what we're talking about in terms of Christianity is not the garb. In fact, to get that point across, and it's not that I'm trying to be a rebel, I'm moving away from the garb. I'm moving away from suit and tie. And maybe I should move away from other things as well. Is suit and tie bad? Of course suit and tie is not bad, man. But you can wear a suit and tie. I mean, every on Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, where did the idea of going out and buy the newest, best outfit to come wear on Sunday morning? Easter Sunday is turned into a fashion show versus the real reason of Easter Sunday. It doesn't make any sense to me. You can come and you can sing all the songs and wear all the right clothes and say all the right things. You can even bring your Bible, dust it off and bring it to church. It does not make you a Christian, man. Christianity, from the perspective of the New Testament offers, is what's going on in Jesus' life. And you see, understand this, Jesus saw this. Jesus saw this. Uh, he called them not horses or mules. He probably didn't have that. He's a country boy, so he didn't really have that problem. But you know, what, what he called them were hypocrites. Now, I want you to understand what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is not a negative, negative word, back in their day at least. In our day, it takes on a negative connotation. But in their day, hypocrites were, it wasn't a negative word. Hypocrite was another word for like Hollywood. Hypocrites were actors. They were, they were actors. Hypocrites, what they, what, where hypocrites would be, would be on these roads that are coming into major cities most of the time. You would have these actors that would set up on the outside of these roads. So as people were either coming in or going out, um, they, could, they could stop for rest and maybe get a bite to eat and they could watch a show or a play. And these hypocrites would have these little papers with stick, uh, kind of drawed faces. Uh, they drew faces on these things, uh, which would represent other people in the town, most likely famous people, important people. And they would act, put on plays. And, and some, most of the time, they would reenact real popular events that have happened, or maybe wars, or, or stories, or whatever, what have you. They were called hypocrites, and they portrayed a certain person, and they acted. Well, Jesus had saw this. Hey, he'd grown up in Nazareth. He's been on the big roads. He's come into the towns before. Even as a boy, we knew that he came in with a group of people when he came into the temple or he came into Jerusalem and the streets were buzzing. And, and sure, you had these things going on here. Well, Jesus, hear this now. Jesus comes in the temple later on in his life. He walks into the temple area. He takes a look at the, Pharise the Pharisees and he goes, whoa, look, hypocrites. Actors. Oh, they look like it. Oh, the look at the makeup and the, and the talent. Wow, they must have practiced. They must have went to acting school for that. But they didn't have it. A negative connotation is he called them whitewashed tombs. Look good on the outside, but dead on the inside. Um, I want to ask you, are, are you a... And I know this is aggressive, but hey, are, are you a horse or a mule? And again, man, you see, you cannot judge that through, well, I come to church on Sunday. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. 
Well, uh, I read my Bible. <laughs> so? I know Scripture. Well, so does the enemy. So does the enemy. I'm talking about, do you have going on in you what Jesus had going on in him? Do you have working in you what he had working in him? Do you have the same passion, the same zealous, the same earnest, the same, the same stis? I mean, you have a passion for being the avenue of God in your world. Do you have that going on in your life? Because this goes beyond religious stuff. And I'm, I'm, tired, I'm tired of judging my, my spiritual walk by what I do. Because they never do that in the scriptures. They never do that in the scriptures. Sure, James talks about, hey, without works, faith is dead, and that you know, you'll bear fruit. But fruit is bigger than just, I'm talking, it's bigger than just, hey, my fruit is I come to church on Sunday, and uh, sure, I, uh, I read my Bible. Yeah, I do. It's bigger than that kind of stuff. It goes to the fundamental bottom line of, of, of what gets me going. I mean, what, what really gets me, what, what turns me, I mean, what, what grips me? Do you, do you have him like that? Are you the demonstration of God in your world? Do you have to walk up to people and say, listen, I'm not a mule. I'm a horse. I purposely do not dress like a pastor. I purposely do not come in and say, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. Because if you hang around me long enough and you don't know that I'm in love with Jesus, there's something wrong in me. Do you know what I'm saying? Jesus never did that. In fact, he kind of seemed like ditched the question. He never went out in his gospel and said, okay, I'm here, I'm the Messiah. All right, I'm here, everybody. Never said that. Never said that. He walks into the temple and they look at him and bam, wow. They said, whoa, look at that. And they saw something in him that they never saw in anybody else. That brings conviction in my life. That brings conviction in my life. Because how many times have I not looked like him? How many times have I not, hey, have I not been after him like that? How many times have people looked at me and saw the marketplace versus the Father's house? I struggle with that in the church. And I, I don't want to be judgmental to the church. But if we're the good news of who God is, why are we, why are we not taking over our towns for Jesus? How do the, how do the people describe you in this town? How do the people work describe you? Well, they're religious. Oh, yeah, they are. Don't say that word around them. They'll get you. He knows all the hymns. Never knew a guy who did that. Wow, he's religious. Wow. Where is it? Man, he's passionate. Boy, don't get sick. He'll be showing up to the hospital, nagging you, telling him, asking to pray for you. How do people see you? Where, where are you driven? See, I have no problem... I have no problem locating the sports fanatics in every church. I have no problem finding the technology geeks in every church. No offense, Pastor, I wasn't talking about you. I have, I have no problem finding the whatever have you in, in, the, in the church. Should it be a problem to find those who are just hysterically crazy, nutty, cuckoo about Jesus in the church? Do you get what I'm saying? Do you have that in your life? I want to live like this. You see, the same thing that's going on in him, I want going on in me. And this goes beyond doctrine to me. The fundamental doctrine of my life is if I don't look like Jesus... I need to change. I need to be molded. I really want that to be what we're after this evening. Hey, teenager. Hey, adult. Are you willing to be molded like that? I'm glad you're here tonight. But why are you here? As a side note, you look in the next chapter and in response to Jesus, the Jews demand a sign. I hate standing in front of churches and this one hasn't been this way. You're safe. You passed the test. 
But I'd hated, I've hated standing in front of churches and they look at me and demand a sign. Hey, entertain me. Keep me occupied. Hey, keep my attention. Well, they weren't there to, they weren't there to get after him, man. Why were they there? I do not know. Maybe they don't have a life. <laughs> Maybe that's the only way they can fit in. That sounds harsh. I'm here to seek him. I'm here to be molded like him. Let me pray with you. Father, we love you this evening. Jesus was sent your son. He was sent the Messiah. He was sent to be the one to show us what all your children are to look like. And maybe that's not even the right language. Maybe we should say that he was sent to be the demonstration of what we are to be. I may not do some of the same things that Jesus did, but I'm the same. I want to be the same inside that Jesus was. I want to be the same, the same mechanisms, what are going on inside of what was what was going on inside of Jesus, I want going on inside of me. The same word that was living in Jesus, I want to live inside of me. The same passions, the same motivations, which was all about your father's house, I want going on inside of me. Hey, I, I may love basketball and I want to play basketball and I want to do this with basketball, but hey, I want to be the avenue of God on the basketball court. I want people to see a difference in me, Jesus. But see, I can't, I can't perform that. I can't, I can't paint that picture. It's a character thing. It's a Holy Spirit done type of thing in my life. I need you like that. We need you like that. Uh, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And we haven't really had too many people come to the altar this week. And I guess what I'm saying by that is I, I don't know if if uh, you're the type of church that responds and comes to an altar. I mean, you have altars. The significance of an altar is not that you've been bad and you come and you kneel and you beg for forgiveness. However, that's, I guess, always an opportunity. That's always a possibility. The altar is the place. It's a physical, it's a physical illustration, maybe. It's, it's, it's a physical deal, a physical illustration of a, of a spiritual that's going on. See, see bowing and bending the neck is, is an old term. It's, it's, it's exposing the neck. It's showing you're vulnerable. It's showing you're broken. I am absolutely convinced and, and hey, this, is, this has been something recent in my life but I'm convinced that Christianity is not based on how well you're living it's not based on how good you're doing. It's not that, that's why comparing to one another never works, which is why Paul says not to. Christianity is being open and broken and vulnerable to God. That's how you describe Jesus' life. Hey, what was he all about? Oh, he was broken. Oh, he was vulnerable. Hey, he was open to change. He had ideas. He had motivations. But they were all at the, they were all at the feet of his Father. When you come to the end of Jesus' life, you see that his life can only be boiled down to one deal, and that was, hey, I am zealous for what my father is zealous for. You see, at the end of Jeremiah Bullock's life, when he's done preaching, when he's done being an evangelist at 110, and he dies and he goes to heaven, and he stands before his father, I want my heavenly father to look at me after boiling down my life and see that my life was, was nothing more, was nothing more than what my father was doing. That's what we're talking about. I really want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. If this cannot be, if your life cannot be described like that, stand up out of your seat, walk up, kneel at this altar, expose the back of your neck and say, I want to be broken and vulnerable to you. Doesn't mean you're a terrible person. Doesn't mean you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And hey, yet I just cast all of those kind of things out the window. This is a personal, I want to know you more. Maybe you've been walking with him. I'm walking with him. But see, I'm coming back up here tonight to break, to break open myself, to, to lay myself before him, to expose my neck, to expose my vulnerability, that he might create and mold in me because I have not arrived. And he's still molded me into the husband he wants me to be, and in, in, in the man he wants me to be, the husband he wants me to be. Do, do you see that?
Would you like to join me in that this evening? How long has it been since you've come back down to the altar and said, I just want to remind you that I'm, I'm available. I'm broken. And no one's looking around. No one's watching who's coming and who's not. But teenager, I want to encourage you. Are you, are you living like this? All too often, I've seen, I've, seen your, I've seen your age group go through church doing the right things. And then after they turn 18 and go to college, I never see them anymore. Which tells me they were big into religion and not big into Jesus. They were big into religious stuff and good morals and that kind of stuff. But they weren't big into being broken, open, and vulnerable before God. You see, I don't really care. I don't really care how religious you are. And that religious is not a bad term. I, see, I'm after brokenness. I'm after vulnerability. Is that where you're living tonight? We're going to open the altar for a brief time of response. And uh, I encourage you. I encourage you to respond. Father, we love you this evening. Holy Spirit, come. We feel your presence. We heard your truth. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be broken. Above all, I want to be zealous to be the avenue of God. To the ave- I want to be your avenue. I want to be your highway. I want to be, I want to be your hand in my world. I want to be your feet. I want to be the setting by which you can work in the most obscure and, and odd places. I want to be the presence. I want to be your presence in the coffee shops of my house, of my world. I want to be your presence in the grocery stores. I want to be your presence on the basketball courts, on the fishing trips. I want to be your presence into the smoke-filled truck stops of my life. I want to be the aroma to you of your son, Jesus Christ, among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. Would you change my heart, oh God? Would you renew a right spirit in me? Renew my mind. Call us back to this.